This podcast is a production of Queen's Public Television in New York City. Visit us on the web at qptv.org. Hey, I'm Mark Bacino, and this is Queen's Creative. Welcome to the maiden voyage of the Queen's Creative Podcast, coming to you from the studios of Queen's Public Television in New York City. I'm your host, Mark Bacino producer of new media and audio content here at QPTV. So you might be thinking, Mark, what is this Queen's Creative Podcast thing all about? Funny you say that, because I was just about to tell you guys. So the Queen's Creative Podcast looks to shine a spotlight on interesting creatives of all types, from the borough of Queens, every corner of New York City, and all points beyond. Through informal conversation and performance, we'll try to get to know these artists and their art, who they are, what they do, and why they do it. And I'm hoping we'll have a bit of a blast along the way as well. Today's guest is singer-songwriter, producer, guitar player extraordinaire, and Astoria Queens resident, Jay Sherman Godfrey. Jay is a super talented guy who, aside from crafting great music as an artist in his own right, has worked with the likes of alternative music legends They Might Be Giants, Monopuff, the acclaimed country singer-songwriter Laura Cantrell, and psychobilly wildman Mojo Nixon, to name just a few. On today's QC, Jay and I hang, talk a bit about his musical journey, his work as an artist, as well as his support work for other artists, and then Jay is going to treat us to a performance live from the floor of QPTV's Studio A. All right, we're going to jump into my conversation with Jay in just a minute, but before we do, please check out this message from QPTV. Today, um, the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment has brought Broadway and the Burroughs here to Queens, uh, here in Jackson Heights, and we're particularly excited about this particular performance because it's World Pride. New York City is the first U.S. city to host World Pride, and it's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, and we're at the site of the start of the Pride Parade here in Queens to present excerpts from the prom and be more chill. We wanted to make sure that everyone has access to Broadway in some way, shape, or form. Some of the people that are here are probably Broadway fans that follow the shows, but then it might also be some cases where it's the first opportunity people have had a chance to see a Broadway performance, and so we just want to make sure that this rich cultural resource is available to all of the residents of New York City. Don't miss Around Queens. Broadway in the Burrows, and many other programs. You can watch them all on our website, qptv.org. Hey everybody, welcome back to Queen's Creative. You're listening to Public Address, a song by today's guest, the talented singer-songwriter, producer, and guitar player, Jay Sherman Godfrey. As promised before the break, let's get into it and jump right into my conversation with Jay. AJ Sherman Godfrey, welcome to Queen's Creative and Queen's Public Television. Uh, thank you for coming. Ah, you're welcome. This is great. Uh, have you have you ever found yourself in beautiful downtown Flushing before? I have. I have. I've uh, well, I've definitely you know done the jury service in Kew Gardens. It's not too far away. <laughs> yes, you're doing and, your, uh, you're doing your duty. And I've 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 been a habitué habitué, I don't know how you say it, of the dumpling houses. Yes, yes, we and, have great, uh, great food here. And of course, I go to baseball games. So. Yes, okay, so you're, <laughs> so you've been here, you're, you're good, you're good. 
Well, I wanted to jump into speaking of Queens. Um, you're a, you're a Queens guy now, right? Astoria, right? Um, you're a longtime New Yorker, um, but you're originally from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Is that correct? That's right. Um, and you know, we've known each other a long time, and we've worked together. But I feel like I don't really know a lot about your background. Like, so how does a kid from Kalamazoo make it all the way to New York City? That's a good question. So. Um yeah, I'm from Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo is a college town, but it's also like, you know, it's a small city, about 100,000 people if you count the bedroom communities <laughs> right. around. Um, and I played the cello when I was a kid. Uh, I was very serious about it. And yeah. so when See, I'm I, learning things already. Um, so my brother went to college out east, and we, I remember I was 16, I think, or 15 or mm -hmm. 16, and visiting my brother at college. And uh, he was in New Haven, and we came down to the city. And I think it was the second time I'd been to New York. And I think on that trip, I decided, well, this is where I want to go. And so back home, um, you know, I went to my college, the college counselor at my high school, and he's like, you know, which which part of the University of Michigan do you want to go to? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't want to go there at all. And he's right. like, well, your parents will be very disappointed. Sure. Um, and I had to go to the library and look up the address for New York University and send them a letter asking them to send me an application. <laughs> and uh, and so I applied to NYU and one other school on the West Coast because wow. I thought it's just drawn straight lines. Straight out lines from both Kalamazoo. ways. Right. Though it's a lot closer. Michigan's not That's as far true. away That's as people true. think. But so I came here with the intent of being a cello player, um, getting a cello teacher. Um, just going to college to do nothing in particular and then trying to uh, get better, do auditions, get into a conservatory. Really? Oh, so so that the was, end game for the cello yeah. was to so, be a professional. Yeah. So, yeah. And then I had a cello master on, up on the Upper West Side, gigantic, you know, when classical musicians still could live in gigantic apartments. And right. um, he was like, well, you're pretty good, but, you know, you play like you're from the provinces and, you know, we'll fix that. And, right. And, uh, and it, it just, you know, by the time I got to New York and I was just hanging out, I, you know, I'd also played in rock and roll bands since I was 13 or 14. Right, so you're doing this concurrently. You're right. playing cello seriously and you're also playing rock right. and roll bands. Right. And so I, you know, and I fell in with some guys that I still hang out with periodically um, that played a lot of different kinds of music. Um, and you know, this idea of working really, really hard to relearn how to play the cello to be a professional, which is really what they wanted me to do, right. uh, just was too hard for like an 18-year-old kid. And right. so <clears throat> I applied internal for an internal transfer to the film school because the, not that I was interested in making films really, but they were having the most fun. <laughs> right, and, they looked uh, like they were having, they were having. Classes most. started at like noon instead right. of eight. Of course. Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, the film school for me was just audio training, really, because that's, I said, I, I just want to be audio recorder, you know. And so right. it was back, it was, NYU still was a technical uh, mm -hmm. uh, school then. It wasn't right. like this highfalutin thing it is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was in a way, but. It always, always was. A, but but they were like, you know, here's a camera, you know, prove, prove that you can use it, that you know what you're doing, and then we'll give you a better camera. You know, and same thing, they, they you know, I took a Nagra recorder out, mm -hmm. which is a tape recorder. Right. that they still use sometimes in filmmaking and it's all digital now, but, um, and you could just check it out for a whole semester. Right. <laughs> right. And it was in my, you know, in my dorm room. So that's how I got to New York. Cause I came to be a cellist and, uh, I 
And after about 18 months, I wrote that letter home, you know, I'm quitting. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, mom and dad. You know, and challenge. I transferred to film school. They were always, they were always amazing. They were, they were like, like well, what whatever. happened to our boy in New York City? No, no, they were, they were, <laughs> they were incredibly supportive of any kind of all my endeavors. That's so, good. Um, you know, and I made something out of it. So, That's cool. um, can you still play the cello? I don't think I I've can. ever seen you. I can. I did. I played on a couple records because people knew that I played the cello and I had one. So I got. I think I played on a Bottled Rockets record. I cool. played the cello like very softly in the background. <laughs> <clears throat> I played on a couple other records too. Um, I remember being in the studio. I cannot recall what records those were. Um, but um, the funny part is, um, and this is something we'll talk about later perhaps, is uh, it was sitting in my house, you know, in disrepair, and you have to play, you have to play violins and cellos and basses to keep them going. They, they need human, they need to vibrate, and they need the oils, and right, right. they start to fall apart. Oh, yeah. So it had been falling apart. So I took it to a shop that where I take my guitars because I knew they had somebody that worked on violins and cellos and I had it rebuilt and then I was going to sell it and mm -hmm. I actually it was worth something and so I listed it at this fancy place in Long Island and yeah. it didn't sell and then my one of my oldest friends in New York Jeremy Tepper who we'll talk about later and his wife Laura Cantrell their daughter was playing the cello and he was saying something like oh you know the teacher wants us to buy a better cello and I don't want to spend the money <laughs> and I'm like well you can have mine she can take my happen on loan. to have a cello right here so she took it on loan oh, and so it's sitting in their house right now so they she's got a new case for it nice. <laughs> it's got a new home because I still had the tattered old that's cool man so the cello brought you to New York City yeah. I didn't see I did not know that at all I had no no clue of that that's weird man interesting interesting so I'm gonna let's Let's back up a little bit. We'll kind of, uh, you know, go a little further back and sort of jump into your musical journey. Um, kind of interested, like, the how and why of you starting to play music. Like, was the guitar the gateway drug or the cello? Which, right. you know, what was the sort of the beginning for you? Well, I went to kind of a hippie uh, lower elementary school so in michigan they, they had this lower elementary upper elementary it's kind of old-fashioned way of doing it but this lower elementary school i went to which is kindergarten through fourth grade mm -hmm. um was a super hippie place <laughs> where there were like no classes and like everybody did what they There's wanted no books man and um and um as 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 most places in the 70s they had this sort of uh suzuki style Mm. Uh, way of trying to find musicians so everybody played the recorder right they still do this I think. yeah they do something yeah. and then Pertinent. the people that could play the recorder then they kind of put them off in this corner and say you know and then they give you a violin and you saw on it for a few weeks and then <laughs> a guy comes in literally a guy comes in and is like picks out the picks. five or six kids that can they think can play and the rest right. of them are shuffled off to right. no, nowhere and then um I remember the dodgeball, day, they, yeah, so I was playing practice. the violin and uh, playing the recorder and the guy came in, that same guy, and I can't remember his name, I hate, he, um, who's that guy who played Snape in the Harry Potter movies? He, yeah, anyway, he he had this, like, he was like this European guy right. with his black hair and um, he, you like, will play he, cello. yeah, he grabbed my hand and said, this one, give this one a cello. <laughs> and then, so they, and then back then they gave it to you, right? So right. they just gave you a cello. He gave you, sent you home with it. At the same time, my mom um, was a school teacher, a college professor, but she also was uh, really active in local theater. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, sort of Michigan, West Michigan theater, she traveled around uh, running like community theater companies. She was like the business, she would run the business part and mm -hmm. also direct the shows mm -hmm. and cast and everything like that. So she'd take me around with her. Right. 
and one of our crazy friends, um, another woman from in town who was deeply into it too, gave me a ukulele. Uh, and it was a baritone ukulele, <clears throat> which I didn't know at the time, which is really just the, if you're looking at a guitar, the bottom four strings. strings right. So, um, and she gave me a book. With Mel Bay, like play the ukulele. Book. Play the ukulele, Mel. And Bay. I tell you, if if you know, people ask like, what's what's your style on the guitar? I was like, wow, watch me play all these ukulele chords, because, <laughs> and I still do it all the right. time. These four note ukulele chords. That's interesting. Wow. And um, so so I started doing that, and and I don't know why, but you know, I was consciously like the cello was training, was rehearsing. Right. It was being in in orchestras. It was like going every drag to, because they to, were like making you do it. Or no, it wasn't a drag. I was totally into it. Um, Mrs. Butler, my cello teacher, who I loved, you know, it was like going to her house every Saturday and doing it. And um, I sort of consciously didn't want anybody to show me any of the other stuff. Like mm -hmm. I learned how to play the guitar myself. Really? Um, wow. uh, just with books. Mel Bay. I had Mel Bay books. Yeah. I had a great I had a Mel Bay great Pete book Seeger too. book. Um, and then I had this really great book called The Art of Folk Blues, uh, who's, I think, Silverman. I can't remember. People can look it up. It's a famous book, and mm -hmm. there's a beautiful painting on the cover. And um, it it is like, it's all these blues songs, St. James Infirmary and Frankie and Johnny. And mm -hmm. it's, it's mostly based on like country blues, what they call country blues, like Buka White and those guys that, that played, which was very big in the folk movement, this kind of yeah, that time. Mississippi folk blues and John Hurt, people like that. And um, so it had all the songs. And then in the back, it had tablature for what, what he called breaks. And um, so the breaks were uh, little tabs of like, dee, 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 you know, like little licks. Right. And, and right. he said, when, after you get to the end of the first verse, you play that lick. And then after you get to the second, you play that lick. Right. And, they, and, and again, Every time I play the guitar, I play those licks, you know, and, and they're very recognizable as like sort of bluesy licks. And so um, I was really into teaching myself how to play the guitar and not like, because the cello was such a thing where like everybody's telling me what to do. So, <laughs> right. So it was um, like a little, a little respite from the cello, yeah. cello world. It was fun. I did it. I did it in the dark by myself in my bedroom a lot. <laughs> so you're talking about playing ukulele as sort of your gateway to the guitar at an early age. You know, I've seen some pictures of one of your early, I think, childhood bands on Facebook or somewhere, and you look like super young. <laughs> you look like you're like four. Um, so I assume you played in bands in grammar school and high school and college, I think you said before. I mean, when did that whole thing start for you? Like when did, I mean, that band picture, you had to be, I mean, seriously, you had to be like 14, 13, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think the first time that we thought, let's play together like a band would, mm -hmm. um, I was 13 or 14, I think. And um, there's guys, um, there's one guy in particular, a guy named John Shaw, who I'm still very, very close friends with, and our families go back several generations. Really? Um, wow. in, in Kalamazoo, it's that kind of town. And um, <clears throat> he was really into music, he was really into the Beatles, I was totally into the Beatles. Uh, like in a big way, and the Beach Boys mainly, um, and that's we shared that, and so we just devoured records. We hung out at the record store downtown, bugged the guy Neil, who <laughs> ran it, and um, 
was he the kind of record store guy that was like, no, man, you can't listen to that. That's bad. No, no, he was the guy who turns you on to stuff. He was, was like, he was like, oh, you like that? Maybe you like this. Oh, cool. And 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 a lot of times he was right. Right. Um, so anyway, we were we were learning to play, and so we thought, well, let's play together. And um, I think the first time we played, was the first couple times we played, one one was at like a battle of the bands kind of thing. <laughs> they had it at my junior high. It wasn't you had to audition for it. We didn't even make it past the audition for for the battle of the bands. But I've done a few. We played uh, Roadhouse Blues by the uh, the Doors by the Doors, and um, so by that time, sort of John and I were sort of intent on getting a band together and. He knew a guy and, and, you know, he knew a guy and, and sort of the singer turned out to be this guy named John Drew, who I think he lives in Tucson now, but, um, folk singer now, but, um, he was the guy with the records. Right. He had like a big brother and he had Stooges records and he had, it's always a guy with the records. He had Velvet Underground records <laughs> and stuff like that. And the other thing is, is Kalamazoo is a college town. Right. So there was always these older guys at the guitar shop at the which there's a bunch because it was Kalamazoo, michigan right gibson the gibson factory, factory was still right. there when i was a kid and uh there was a lot of little operations around town mm -hmm. like guys who used to work at the factory or something um and so there's lots of guys to to like to stew all the music and right. it was really the tail end of that hippie thing you know we, i think we played all along the watchtower it was the second <laughs> song we ever played um and then i wasn't really a religious kid but i had fallen in with this uh, youth group at the Presbyterian Church because it was a really cool place to hang out. They had a youth house oh, like a youth and it had a jukebox. Oh, there we go. And um, and it was just the guy, this guy who was the youth pastor was like just a total classic rock guy. So it was just full of like Crosby, Stills and Nash and like right. all great records. <clears throat> and so it was just this kind of place. And I think the second time we ever played, maybe that was one of the pictures you saw where we maybe. were playing in the backyard. Uh, and these guys were good musicians. Um, uh, Dave Levine was the drummer, and he was especially good. Um, yeah, there's some, when you're in that kind of grouping as a kid, there's always like one guy that's like a little above that, everyone else's pay that grade. Was, <laughs> that was Dave, and and John, I you know John Shaw, you know few whatever. Several years ago, we were talking about it, and he was like, "Yeah, he was the one, right? He could play, and 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 so it made us sound like a band." Because the right. drummer knows the songs. It's good when the, when the drummer is that yeah. guy. Yeah. And then you try to elevate yourself. To <laughs> right. And and like I said, it was a college town. And um, even though we were underage, we could get gigs. Um, I remember uh, having to get John's dad to like take us to the club. And <laughs> right. Uh, I remember once we the, the club didn't pay us. And he went and said, you got to, you know, he went and got our gotta money. Got to pay the kids. And, Come on. Uh, and uh, so pretty soon we fell into just throwing our own parties and playing and nice. uh because you know, yeah, you're too young to be <laughs> yeah, playing in clubs the so gigs i was doing in new york when i first got here in the early in mid early and mid 80s um i was like where's the money because back home we were making money playing <laughs> parties right right like a couple hundred dollars each right like it's great yeah because we heard they were just here. like parties and right. every, the kids would pay two dollars each and uh, where's the keg where's the band yeah That's it. um yeah. And so I was doing that. My cello teacher hated that I played the electric guitar. She's like, those things are out of tune. But, um, <laughs> but I did both. I, you know, I started playing in bands and, and um, we started writing songs to the tail end of that. Right, because like, that was going to be my next question. Okay. I was going to ask you, when did you start writing songs? Because that's always, to me, that's always <laughs> fascinating for me. Like, I always want to know when musicians sort of make that transition right. from playing Louie Louie to like right. writing their own stuff, right. you know. 
Because, like, for me, I was probably, I don't know, I was older. I was probably, like, 15 when I started writing, you know, terrible, terrible songs. Um, so I was curious what, you know, like, that timetable was, what kind of timetable was, you know, well, for you? I, it was, that, it was like, 1978, right? Because right. New Wave uh, and, like, punk rock, we started putting that stuff in our sets. Mm. Like, we started playing those songs. We started playing the Blitz Creep Pop and stuff like that. And to us, to me, it was just like, well, this is just another Louis Louis song. It's the right. same thing. It's, it's like the Phil same, Spector with the same three chords, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but but really, I was just like, okay, yeah. well, these are the same chords. I know how to play this. And and the singer was a little bit more sophisticated than us. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it essentially, you know, at, at like, and so he was leading us a little bit. And the guy at the record store was like th showing us all these punk rock stuff. And and so the, especially like the new wave stuff. I think I got I got an Undertones record, and like a Clash record. And like an Elvis Costello record, like the same week because 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 I was reading yeah uh, that Trouser too. Press yeah. that year and, it was great and 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 making lists of like the things I was supposed to get and even though those records didn't come out together they were all available in this kind of t window True. and I was like well I can write songs too I mean really that was that was, that was it because those a I had played enough music to learn well it's only these five or six chords <laughs> right. in all the songs so only these and um. And so we started with. writing super derivative new wave songs, like super new wavy, like doingy, 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 <laughs> like, um, which are on tape somewhere really? in the world. But um, for blackmail purposes. But it was funny because we were writing those songs and um, also, you know, we were still playing like Search and Destroy in our sets. Right. So because it was like crowd pleasing stuff. Yeah. And so we were, we, we got, you know, that was really, really fun. And, and, by the time I was finishing high school, that band had started to dry up a little bit. They, but, they all start to fizzle out. But um, but I learned a lot. Um, we played with a lot of other, like we played with college kids and they had their bands, right? And we right. played with them and very often were better than them and also out, you know, outdrew them. Right. right. Um, wow. And so we played at these frat parties. Well, they weren't really frat parties, house parties. Mm -hmm. uh, because, and... Uh, I remember thinking, um, how many gigs did we do? We did a lot, right? We played a lot. And and because I was thinking, you know, over the years, like, you know, how many gigs have I done? And we played a lot of gigs and it got to the point where we were like a good, a good little band, mm. like that knew their stuff right. and like was tight. Yeah. And, uh, and I thought, well, maybe I want to do this, you know also right you know the cello and is now looking a little right and the songs are the songs were like little pale they were so like uh i mean it was they were i they were good songs in the sense that we really were good at copying people and mimicking right. the stuff right so how you start you know you right. sort of emulate what you hear and hopefully you make you start to make it your own and right. that's where you kind of go yeah hey, it's very always interesting to me like when people make that transition because it's i remember it distinctly it's a very like you know like oh wow I can, maybe I can do this. Maybe. Yeah. You know, um, you know, kind of going from that to, from songwriting, you know, I guess once people start writing their own songs, they want to start to think about obviously playing them live, but also maybe what you can do in the studio. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and I know something I wanted to talk to you about is studio work because I know that's always been sort of a big part of, of what you do. Um, and you even eventually you owned a, you co-owned a studio in Brooklyn mm -hmm. with a uh, keyboardist and producer Joe McGinty. Um, so the other question I had was sort of 
along those lines is when did you get bit by the recording bug? Uh, Always curious about that. Really, too. really, really early. So my parents had a, a stereo system that they bought at some point in the 70s, early 70s. Um, and it was, it was one of those things where it's all Sony. Mm. And it had a turntable and it had speakers and it had a reel-to-reel tape recorder that wow. came with it. Like in the drawer, it was, did it, like, no, was it was a like, console? It, was, it wasn't a console, but they all went together. Oh, nice. Um, and it, at some point it was like sort of set up, but then it got moved to this parlor area, which is near the front of our house, you know, kind of an old 20s style house where you come in the front door and then right to your left is this parlor, they call it, you know, it's right. like, anyway, it had windows and that's where I had my cello. That's where the piano was. That's, so that was the music, the music room. room. And my mom was a singer and an actress and she used it too. Really? Oh. Um, yeah, as part of her, part of her sort of second her side gig um Mm. of directing community theater and acting and um so anyway so there's this this tape recorder and at some point i can't remember when i was like well what does this thing do and like how does it work and um i've always been that guy um not i'm not mean you know if it has buttons and knobs i can figure out how it works were you the guy (laughs) in the band that was like i'm the guy who's i'm gonna record yeah i mean and and as soon as i got an electric guitar i was like oh you know and the amplifiers i was totally into like all of that stuff all i love the gear i still do um and being in kalamazoo there's a lot of gear because of gibson and there's all sorts of ancillary businesses to gibson that people don't you know like ghs strings is in battle creek and Bigsby, right. they still make Bigsby's uh, tremolos right in Kalamazoo in a little really? factory. I the, didn't know the, that. the handmade ones, not oh, okay. the not the ones you buy from in oh, the store, but like cool. you can still get one really made of nickel, right. and they'll make it there by hand still. And um, so there's a uh, there's a big music business that was mm-hmm. in the background. Proco is is still is in Kalamazoo. Mm-hmm. So there's there's always like in the music instruments like section of there's always junk, right? Like microphones and all sorts of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So I had figured out how to use this tape machine. Um, and it had come with a bunch of tapes. Like it was a classic thing. You, my, I imagine this is. I totally imagine the scenario. My dad walking in. I need. A, I needed a sound system, and the salesman selling him this Turn whole this, this thing. And, and it came with like because I asked my mom at once. I was Real like, where did all tape. these tapes come from? And she said, well, they just gave them to us when we bought the the thing. And and the funny thing is, the tapes were I can remember most of them. The white album, which really? is a, which came in a brown box, which I still have. And, and you're talking, what is this? Qu- this is yeah, quarter, quarter inch, inch. Actually, the worst five possible. It's like um, right. ha- quarter inch half track. So it's two right. stereo tracks on half of a piece of quarter inch tape. Half of it, right. One, and so it goes this way, and then you hit a button, and it goes back right. the other way and plays the other side, side. Ne- next to each other. So an eighth, you know, right. whatever, you know, right. a ridiculously right. low fi. Right. Um, and also super slow speed, like three and three quarters. So, um, but I figured out how to use this machine, and um, it had a microphone with it. And then I bought another microphone that had the same plug, mm. and we started just making the kind of recordings kids make of like <laughs> goofing off, <laughs> right. you know. And then I figured out well, I could record myself playing the cello, I could record myself playing the ukulele, I could record myself singing. It's great. And um, and so then the band we wanted to make an album, of course, <laughs> right, in of 1980 course. something like that. Right, and we right. uh, another friend of ours, this guy named Dirk an older guy, again, there's all these, there's mentor type mm. guy, right? Like a mu- good musician who played right. in like a lounge band in town. Right. Um, and uh, he's like, well, I'll do it. And he had a four track recorder, mm-hmm. right? And so he recorded it on a real TAC, reel to reel four track. And I remember the whole time, like I was playing and I just wanted to watch him 
what he was doing. Yeah, you were like bit by the the bug yeah. of like of the gear bug and the, yeah, the, yeah, a- anything with knobs and like <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, and you still, I mean, that sent you on a what I see for you as like a you know a parallel path. Right, um, and and at NYU we were talking about going to film school. Um, you know, I was taking film classes. I was watching a lot of films. I was learning the technical aspects of making film, but. Mm-hmm. They had just built that new building on Broadway and Soundcraft had like given them hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear. And there was a, a, a whole studio and all you had to do was like ask if you could use it. Yeah, and that's like, it. And, and just, uh, like, they had, you know. That's great. To this day, I like still like think all that Soundcraft gear sounds good. It probably doesn't, right? But that's what <laughs> I learned to play it. That's what I learned on. And, right, And right. Uh, I still love that stuff. That's awesome. So yeah, so there's playing around yeah i mean you're you know that's definitely we're going to get into your sort of production side of the world uh, kind of thing that you do um but before we jump into that i was thinking i wanted to just explore your sort of time that you were talking about at school and your early time in new york city Mm -hmm. um you know so like it's the late 80s or in and around late 80s early 90s you start singing and playing with one of sort of to my mind, the, one of the original sort of pioneering alt country mm-hmm. before there was alt country <laughs> bands called the world famous Blue Jays. So, how did that outfit and the whole like diesel only scene sort yeah. of come about? So, I mentioned this name before. Jeremy Tepper um, is a guy I met at school. He was, I think, he was a year ahead of me, um, and he um, was one of these guys that had like all these records and just was really a deep musical guy. Mm. And um, they had a rehearsal space in the dorm where I lived. Um, and that's, I think, where we connected originally. Yeah. I, I had a guitar, so I brought it down there. And, and you said he was a year ahead of you. Yeah, but yeah. he was hanging around. And, right. and uh, there's another guy, this guy named Mike, uh, Mike Simberg, who goes by Mike Edison now, who's he's an author, but a musician. And we all started just playing, kind of jamming. Mm-hmm. And, um, Jeremy had an idea of like playing country music. He's from Poughkeepsie, um, and he. I can't yeah, it's remember. like you're in the middle of New York yeah, City, so, and it's new. You know, it's the was, late you know, 80s. Again, he like, was a guy who was totally into all the punk rock that we were listening to, but he had a deeper. Right. He had he had a wider and deeper appreciation. Like he knew a lot more about music, about stuff on the edges, a lot about blues mm-hmm. and, and country, and um, we just started playing gigs in the Lower East Side, just the two of us. And um, this was in the mid, early to mid '80s, um, playing like Get Rhythm and even like songs like Song Song Blue, just like a little duo, right. kind of country nice. duo. And um, believe it or not, in New York, we weren't part of it, but there was there was a pretty healthy country music scene um, in New York, um, mostly centered around a place called Oldunis, um, Irish bar. But mm-hmm. that's another story. But so we we had that, and then there was other people having the same ideas concurrently. Like there was um, Amy Rigby and her brother, Michael McMahon, or Amy McMahon at the time. Um, they had a band called The Last Roundup and they were really like playing hillbilly music, their version of it, their kind of citified version mm-hmm. of that. Um, and then there were other people on the Lower East Side playing root, what now you'd call roots rock, okay. right? And also there was this mix of guys that, um, who were buskers, professional street players, um, who were, some of them were American, some of them were European, some of them were English, and we fell in with them too because they were just around Mm -hmm. playing gigs. Um, 
they would also play in clubs and on the streets. And they had huge musical ears. Like they would play Hank Williams and Miles Davis in the same set and wouldn't even think about it. Wow. And, and I remember thinking, I remember consciously thinking that's cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, um, There's no boundaries. As you can imagine, you know, I, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. I came from Kalamazoo and I put myself in this stew of New York For and sure. something happened, right? Yeah. So the Blue Jays turned into a real band, a four-piece right. band, and, and got more electric, um, got more aggressive and loud. Um, and then we started playing this weird version of country, like truck music, truck, truck driving music, and country, right. which is totally Jeremy's thing. He was just like, we're going to do this. I remember him giving me a... 90 minute cassette so it was like something essentially all the truck all the great truck driver songs from like curating from truck drivers blues which is from 1939 all the way up to dave dudley or whatever and convoy you know and so that band was a cover band and then we started writing our own songs Mm -hmm. in the mold of the style we were playing very genre pieces you know and not songwriterly at all just Mm -hmm. like really good time music um and that was a band that, that worked. And yeah. also we um, played a lot and we, we, were, we drew pretty well. Yeah, you we guys were like, have a lot of press and a lot of the, good buzz the, going around. I, the, 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 we had the phrase I, I, I came up with this tiny fame, you know, within 20 blocks, we were like superstars, <laughs> right? right? So um, uh, so that was a going concern and we tried to make it. You know, we really tried hard. Jeremy, Jeremy tried hard. He was, he was super ambitious. He was really smart. Um, it's almost had, like you guys were a little head of the curve. Yeah, and, yeah it's true. You know, <clears throat> but you know, in the end, um, at the end of it, you know, we went to Nashville and we got publishing contracts, mm-hmm. and you know, they were like the Kentucky Headhunters were really big at the time, and they're like, okay, you could be that, right? Right. You know, right. and I think that we couldn't. Um, <laughs> it was way too New York and yeah. noisy, and then, um, and that just sort of, you know, the, 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 the top came off of it. And yeah. we kept playing for quite a long time mm-hmm. after that. Turned back into a cover band. Mm-hmm. Stopped really playing our own stuff and just turned back into like a party band. But um, that was really interesting because it was, you know, a little bit of the music business. We started a little record label. We put out 45s. Again, all Jeremy. Right, just like, right. you know. And that's what, that's Diesel. Vinyl, diesel you know, only, 20 right. years again before anybody wanted to buy vinyl. <laughs> and going to Nashville to... Right. Uh, get impressed and yeah. and uh, and sticking labels on thousands of <laughs> envelopes and mailing them mailing everywhere. out to folks yeah we did a catalog and and you know so it was a culty thing right. um, but it was super fun and it also was a great education as as a musician again you know I thought I had played a lot of gigs and then we were playing four nights a week and back then you know you played from nine till two yeah and and serious and you got paid a little something too. So you're getting your chops. I think even I, better and I think better. I, I think I became a good, that's when I became a good guitar player. Right. I'm an eccentric no, I, guitar player, but I think, I think, can, I think you can say you're yeah. a good guitar player. <laughs> but I got good because I played a lot. Right. Yeah, and sure. Um, I mean, that's, um, that's how it happens, right? I mean, it's, then, people want to know the secret, but there's no secret. It's just, you know, we were talking about before we, the podcast, we were talking about, you know, the people that you meet that, that become, those anchors in your journey or your yeah. or your mentors, your sample. So Jeremy Tepper is like responsible for like so many musical things I've done in my life. Right. He's just this guy, right? And <laughs> right. he's at, he's there and um, I've been able to springboard off of that and everything. And yeah. and, and now he's a radio programmer. He's a programmer at, at Sirius. He works at Sirius. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I, I joke that, you know, he did all this crazy stuff and he was 
so visionary and like just yeah. did all this amazing stuff and thought of all these cool things to do and essentially wrote a resume for this job that doesn't exist and then the job existed the and then he appears. he's perfect <laughs> so, he's perfect for it yep. so I, I hear you man. you know it's, it. yeah again like you know so yeah you're right i mean that all country thing um I, I don't know, the Blue Jays don't really fit the mold of of what you'd think of it, but we were certainly playing in country, the, in like the this general kind of, sort of. Yeah, you know. we were. We thought of ourselves more as like in the mold of like the Blasters or something right, like right. that, right? Like these kind of roots rock, uh, which was another term that came later yeah, to yeah. to be applied. And yeah. then, then, then at the same time, there was a, among those older musicians and people in, in New York was this guy named Eric Amble, who again. You know, he Roscoe, took. He Roscoe. was. He was one thing ahead of us. He sort of. He had been in a real band. He was in Joan Jett's band. He was a real professional musician. He was a really good guitar player, and he was like, "I'll be your producer, and we'll do it together." And so he was a huge part of that Blue Jays becoming what they did. Right, you know, right. this kind of polished, cracking cr- band. I knew you guys were. You know, knew each other, but I didn't realize that that connection was there. With yeah, the and something. yeah, so that was. It's, yeah, he was. He's another one of those guys that's responsible for half the things. <laughs> right, a lot of things. I know. I know. He's 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 at Lakeside Lounge, New York City. Mm-hmm. He also owned that. There's a lot, a lot of lot of things that he's had his hand in. Um, and that actually, that's interesting because talking about Roscoe as a producer, um, you aside from being sort of an accomplished guitarist and a singer songwriter, you know. Um, you spent a lot of your time uh, as a sideman in some ways, um, sort of like the secret weapon in people's bands, but you've also spent a lot of time as a producer. Um, you know, so you've worked with people like They Might Be Giants and Laura Cantrell, as you mentioned before, Will Rigby, Mojo Nixon, Michael Shelley, <laughs> lots of different people as a sideman, as a producer. So I was curious, like, how did you find yourself transitioning uh, you know, into that sort of uh, producer role. Mm. Like, where did that, how did that come about? Well, I started playing guitar with other people. Um, I guess after this Blue Jays sort of peaked, I was just playing guitar. Um, I, w- I didn't really like put a shingle out and say, I'm, you know, I'm a guitar player for hire, but, mm. I, you know, most of the things I've done in my life are just like being in the right place at the right time or, you know, just h- hanging out and, and meeting people. Right. You know, I, I played with They Might Be Giants, oh, you know, on a couple of their records in a small way. And then, did, you know, sort of right when they started having a band. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I got that. I, John Flansburg was the only other person I knew that lived in Williamsburg in 1986. <laughs> and, and also... Right. you were a pioneer living and in also, Williamsburg, um, too, I remember. You know, I think, you know, there's a, there's a guitar shop called Mojo Guitars that used to be in St. Mark's. And that was like the clearinghouse, right? You could just sit there and play. And I think he asked me, like, do you want to do something when I was sitting there? doing that dumbass like guitar store <laughs> thing where you're playing right. all the guitars and right. like wasting time. But you weren't playing uh, Stairway to Heaven. So no, I was wasn't. Probably, <laughs> probably, I was trying probably to, okay. I was probably trying to play the intro to, uh, I don't want to spoil the party. So he was like, okay. Yeah. You're, anyway. You're um, anyway. So, yeah. So, and then, you know, I got the gig with Mojo because Roscoe was producing him and, and I got the gig with the bottle rockets because my, um, you know, playing the cello, <laughs> the craziest <laughs> thing, you know, about with, cause Roscoe was producing that. Um, so, so I wasn't really trying to like be that session guy, but I ended up sitting around a lot of studios with guitar, especially the giants. Like I just, I got to hang out at Bearsville and record there. And also like, uh, 
beautiful rooms in Manhattan sure. that don't exist anymore. Right, Skyline, you know, Skyline, really yeah. beautiful places uh, where there's a ton of gear. And yeah. and you know what making records is like? It's like a lot of sitting around, yep. just like making movies. That's yep. what I learned in film school. So a lot of hanging around. Hurry up and wait. Yeah. And so I was always bugging the engineer and I was always in the control room asking what they were doing. And, um, and you already had the background of being uh, interested in being that guy in the band who was twiddling on right and, yeah so it was fun and and so i ended up spending a lot of times in studios and and just being that i'm not i was never like a studio rat you know i never tried to get a job i thought about it but right um it just seemed natural the natural next step was like well you know maybe i should try that and i think i remember roscoe when he was producing us one of his mantras like you only need somebody who's done it one more time than you <laughs> right to, to in be, charge to be Right. right, qualified, and right. I really took that to heart. Right, yeah, like, so I can do this. Yeah, I was playing with a. I had I was in a, another band with this uh, called Angelina and the Zephyrs, and we had a we had a recording tr contract, and we recorded in real studios, and so I got a taste of it, and I thought it was fantastic. Like, right. I mean, we're sitting in a studio now, and I love it. Right? Yeah, I just love being in the studios, right. and uh, the day job I had was running a television studio for an insurance company. So um, that's how I got from sort of playing to like getting behind the getting behind the glass and, and back then you could still buy stuff pretty cheap and i essentially put like a studio together right. i want really desperately wanted to buy a tape machine but some guy like sold me a, a, an adat oh, instead right? oh, and yeah. and everybody talked about how terrible <laughs> they are but that made it possible right you know? sure i yeah. i used adats plenty man that was in right. my first studio with a partner of mine we we went from we graduated from the quarter inch uh and, and, and I, bought a, I bought a Soundcraft console because I yeah. knew how to use it right. and I thought they were cool. Right. Right. <laughs> and uh, started to try and make records. And it started, started, the, started the path. You know, I mean, two of the records I wanted to focus on, you know, sort of that you produce are critically acclaimed records, were for Laura Cantrell, as you mentioned before, um, Not the Trembling Kind and When the Roses Bloom Again. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those projects? I mean, you know, they're fairly well known and Laura's a great singer songwriter um, how did you come about sort of getting involved well the whole that? the whole Laura connection was because Jeremy and Laura had started dating mm -hmm. though I think I knew her a little bit before they were together um, just because she was on the scene she was she had a radio show at WKCR she went to Columbia where she played country music on the radio right which was awesome uh, because at some point you know people saying, you know, let's play country music turned into me really getting into it. Right. Especially as like a guitar player's music. And I think that that's something that people always look at me funny. They're like, well, don't you want to be like Gary Moore or something? Right. I'm like, no, like the, my, the pickers are like country music. is just full of all this amazing, just off in the side in the back picking. Right. right? And I really so got into color that. Stuff, that yeah. yeah. So anyway, so Laura um, had started doing gigs or started singing and, and we had a band that was really just a vocal group with this mm -hmm. woman named Robin Goldwasser, who was John Flansburg's uh, girlfriend and became and married him later. But um, it was a singing group, you know, mm -hmm. like a harmony group. And then that sort of evolved into more of a band. Right. Um, she she we, we made a recording. Uh, the the Giants had like a little sub label called Hello Recordings. Yes, yeah, so I remember that. And so she made one of those, and I had been on other ones of those, and. Somehow she was like, "Well, let's let's see what making a record would be like. Mm -hmm. Like, let's not make a record, but let's try it." 
right. let's try it. And so I said, I'll be the producer. I, you know, I don't think anybody elected me. And then perhaps I might have even, you know, stepped on a few toes right, saying sure. that. So I, I was like very vocal. I'm, yes, I want to be, the, I, I want to be, be the, the producer. And everybody was like, fine. And so that was how I got that job. Wow. And then, um, we recorded four songs at the old studio G, um, which was on union street, um, back then. And they sounded great. Um, mm. People really responded to them when I when we played them, and, mm. and Laura just has this vocal quality that's just yeah, she's it's great. a special thing. And um, it was very modest, um, but you know I think the band at that point had learned to like respect that voice and mm-hmm. then just kind of play make stay out of the way. And, right. and even in those early days. And so, long story short, I went to Scotland on vacation in 1998. And I met a guy, I knew this guy named Francis McDonald through Michael Shelley, mm-hmm. a mutual friend of ours, um, because he had been at my house and we had recorded some Michael Shelley stuff together. And um, He's in the Bandits, right? Was it yeah, he was in the BMX Bandits, Bandits and then in Teenage, Teenage Fan Club. Club right. But he had started a little record label in Glasgow, which was sort of a power poppy kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I don't know why. I, I thought to right. give it to this guy, but I went. We went out of our way, and in fact, the people that were on vacation with me, my wife at the time, and uh, her sister and her boyfriend, were like, didn't really want to do it. We, we went to Glasgow. I, I love Francis. Um, we hit it off. I really think he's a great guy, and I handed him this thing, and he, and he was like, he's like, well, what's that like? And I'm, so, it's it's this kind of poppy country music, right. and he's like, kind of, I don't, I don't, I can't remember how he reacted. He didn't, right. it didn't seem to be a reaction at all, but I gave it to him. And then we went on our vacation. And then um, I got back to New York, and Laura called me and said, "Who is this guy? <laughs> Who is from Francis McDonald? That's calling me, leaving me messages on my right. answering machine." Right. And um, and so he got he was smitten by it, right. and he funded the making of the rest of the album, nice. which we recorded. Nice. A little bit more at Studio G, and then mm-hmm. a little bit more in their loft because I was like, I want to use my stuff, right? right. So. So um, that was a great band. Will Rigby played the drums from the DBs. We recorded some some of it also out in uh, Hoboken with Gene Holder, who was also in the DBs. It had a great studio mm-hmm. in Hoboken. Anyway, that came together, um, and we thought, well, this is cool. We have a whole record. He put it out. It's a, on a proper right. whatever. This shoot <laughs> shoe shine is what he called shoe the label, shine, right, but right, um, remember, yeah. It was a shoestring label. It was just like right. him in an office, you right. know. And um, again, that kind of thing of like, you know, whatever. He's, Francis slept on my couch. I remembered him. You know, mm-hmm. so it's talking about people again, making those connections, yeah, making right? Making those connections, sure. Chance meeting. You know, I said, let's 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 have coffee, and and right. I'll give you this this thing that I think is really cool. Right. And then um, because I know you have a record label, and then he hires this. Uh, Laura would know be- know the names better, but he hires this uh, publicist mm-hmm. to to push the record. Because um, those records, I can't got remember his name. I think he was interesting from, people's hands. He was from Leeds or someplace like that. Right. And this guy had a uh, a way of getting records to John Peel, the, right. the famous um, British BBC, BBC disc jockey. Yeah. Um, so somehow that, you know, he, he gets, you can imagine how many CDs he got at that time, he get, he, whatever. He, think, yeah. he had a pile no or whatever. Reason. He listened to it. 
And he was smitten by it because right. the lore is so fantastic. And again, he didn't really even know why. He's like, I don't like country music, but this is glorious. <laughs> right. And then, so once you get played, so the thing, the thing I learned um, mm -hmm. is that the, in England, there's one radio station, really. Right. Right? I mean, there's a lot of different flavors of it. And now there's more. Now, but, yeah, but, but back he, then. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. But, you know, in the 90s, yeah. um, early 2000s, being on John Peel's show was a big deal. And then being on the BBC was a big deal. And then, like, because Peel played it, then other people played it. Sure. Right? And, and um, a tastemaker. And Laura essentially took off. Yeah. You know, in England. And, and, and it's like Elvis Costello was like, I love yeah. these records. Yeah. <laughs> he claims that he liked the picture on the cover, which is a great picture. But yeah, so anyway, that was that was a big deal. That right. was really fun. For sure. Um, yeah. um, I didn't, you know, I had a job and a kid and, right. and a wife, so I didn't really go on tour or anything like that, but I really yeah. enjoyed the, you know, I mean, that sure. was just fantastic, you know? Yeah. And so Amazing. we made another one right. on the heels of that called When the Roses Bloom Again, which was received just as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was much more of a homemade thing. I think it sounds a little bit worse than <laughs> Not the Trembling Kind because I did it all myself. But right. only you would hear that. Though I think we mixed it at Roscoe's place, so okay, it sorry. has this beautiful, had this punch. That's good. Yeah, it's, I don't think I don't think anybody. Would but I think that you know, any criticism. I can there. I can still go to places in Scotland and England, and I could say Laura Cantrell, I produced those records, and people would think that was cool, right? right. And yeah. uh, I think it's cool. <laughs> so, so I think that you know, and then go. We got to play John Peel's house, and I've told people many times that was it. That's the peak. I really don't have to do anything else. Yeah, that's I don't that's have to. Um, that's serious. Uh, so yeah, I mean this marginal music career I've had, you know, is really just based on all those connections. I think, you know, the more People. I talk to you about it now, the yeah. more it's like, yeah, just, we're laying it out. And you're right. like, yeah, wait a minute. That yeah, it's always the way, man. It's like, you know, knowing people. And, right. And, and then, you know, when I was in that band, Angel Dean the Zephyrs was when I first started. Angel Dean was the singer and she was in the last roundup. She was a great country singer. That was the first time I started writing songs. Okay, this is a song for you, not for me to sing, for but me. a song for somebody else. Right. And then some of those songs ended up on Laura's Lewis. record. And then I thought, oh, I can write songs for Laura to sing. Or I can write songs for somebody else to sing. Right. And that was a turning point for me. Yeah, Though I, you know, I don't think I've been covered that much. But I mean, it feels like you've had a pretty selfless sort of approach in music. I mean, you know, being a sideman, being a producer, you know, writing for other people. Um, you know, uh, it's, a, it's usually... You know, this, you, as you and I know, this business is, you know, full of narcissists, you know, so it's uh, me being one of them. So I know. Well, you need them. That's the fuel. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting for me to, to kind of get here a little bit about, you know, your journey and on that side of things. You know, I find it, I find it really nice. And, 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 and for someone who's like, yeah, I'm going to give this song away. I'm going to produce. I'm going to support this artist. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a nice change i mean i you know I, I know a lot of people do but it's nice to talk to someone and kind of get inside your your head about that whole thing mm. um but to move away from that let's 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 take it to you now mm. um in 2013 you took a little break from the bands and the sidemen and the producer world um to sort of focus on making a, a great record called public address mm. for yourself as an artist so sort of shedding that sideman producer thing going back to yourself like so what prompted that move being that you've been such sort of a selfless sort of musician uh and generous in that regard like what what made you decide at that point that you were going to 
concentrate on, uh, I mean, it seems reactionary in a good way. I mean, yeah. I assume. Well, in 2006, I actually made an EP um, uh, called Two Score, which I selfishly commemorated me turning 40. <laughs> um, again, it was like I was sort of in between things. Right. And I thought, at that point, I was doing a lot of work at Studio G. I was working with Laura there. I was producing a couple other things. And I'd also started doing a couple little movie soundtracks. That never really took off, but I tried. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I was like always there. And I thought, well, and I had songs that I had pitched to Laura. I had songs that I around. And I had enough songs to, to put like an EP together. So right. I thought I would. Cool. And I also had sort of willing band people mm -hmm. to play. Um, so, you know, mostly from from the orbit of, of uh, Laura, but I met this uh, woman named Phoebe Summersquash uh, from Rhode Island. Um, and she was, she played the drums. And so I was like, all I need is a drummer who knows the songs. Cause I'd learned that when I was 13 right. years old. So I, we With played just as a was duo. Slightly better than all anyway, so we ended up recording this thing and, and I liked it a lot. And um, I didn't try to promote it. I didn't try and do any gigs. I did maybe a couple mm -hmm. or whatever, but but it, it seemed a little half done at, at the same time. And um, then I got busy. Uh, I mean, I was always busy, but I think, you know, there was getting new jobs and the kids gotten a certain age. Sure. And uh, a little bit more intense. And then, intrudes, you know, not yeah. too long after that, I decided I would really, you know, I could afford to just have a studio to keep my stuff in. And also if I could do enough work to make it break even, I wouldn't be stealing money out of my child's future. <laughs> you know, so right. um, that, that didn't really work out, I don't think, in the end. But um, And I also, you know, um, with the Blue Jays, and we had some TV placements, and I had, I had a royalty stream, so I had some money. I was making money. Um, always helpful. On, side, on the side of my, like, I always had day jobs doing right. this whole thing. Some where they would let you come and go, some not. Right, right. right. Um, that's the great thing about New York is, is you can be both things. And um, True. True. So I would have a day job and say, look, I got to take a little tour. And they, I had the kind of, they said, well, that's fine. Um, so, uh, yeah, so public address, I had the studio with Joe. I had made some recordings. I was like going to try and do it, right? I was going right. to try and get clients and make some recordings, but it was kind of dry. <laughs> so I thought, well, why do I have this place? Why did I open this place? And so there was sort of a pent up album. I had written a bunch of songs. Um, right. and I wrote more songs, um, and I took my sweet time in the studio, which I'd never been able to do. Well, I'm, I'm a guy, you know, I'm yeah. a guy who knows about that. So, 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 I, so I it was really it. fun. And, and I thought, you know, I'd never done a thing where I'd like thrown the kitchen sink at stuff. And so I had this Joe McGinty, who was the partner in the studio, had a huge collection of keyboards. Right, he's a great um, player. It was a really too. nice space to record in. I actually recorded a bunch of the basic tracks and Jeremy Chatsky, who was the bass player that played with Laura for so many years, who I played with in a lot of different combos. He had a beautiful barn upstate. We were, I did my thing that I, yeah, I'm still pretty good at that, of like setting up a studio in a barn and, or in a, in a garage or whatever and recording right. a band. I love to do that. It's my favorite thing to do in the world. Um, would do that tomorrow, you know, if I had a chance. Uh, just like, hey, let's you know, let's throw, let's, let's put on a show, kids. So let's put on a show, kids. Um, so Build the studio, kids. So anyway, so that was a lot of, and again, it was partnerships. Uh, Nancy Polstein was the drummer. Mm -hmm. uh, I, again, I played with her, and I've seen her play with a lot of different people. Uh, I've recently produced a band she was in. So there's this long-standing relationship. 
where, okay, let's get something cooking. Right. And um, again, a lot of great musicians I've played with over the years uh, lent their talents to it. Uh, John Graboff, uh, who played with Laura and who I've- Pedal Steel. Yeah, and just a fantastic guitar played player. Played with who uh, Ryan Adams. Who I've learned Cardinals. so much from uh, over the years, just watching him play. And, and, uh, and great guitar player, yeah. of course. Yeah, just an incredible just, picker. And so so anyway, so it was, seemed like this kind of group effort and yeah. it was a big deal. And I, like I said, I took my sweet time and mixed it and mixed it and mixed it and mixed it. I wanted to make what I thought was like a, a record that sounded like a record. Right. And uh, I finally had a studio and real speakers and the whole deal. <laughs> so... Um, I did it and it was a cathartic time and it was just there's a lot going on in my life at the same time and there was people that were you know Sherry Leone like people mm -hmm. that really were invested in helping me get it done and, mm -hmm. and doing things with it and um, I think it's it came out great yeah, and then I and record. then that was that was it like <laughs> all of the thinking and it's passion like I put into it just out. sort of was done and I right. I um, a few people have chastised me greatly for not sort of following up on that. And I don't know why I didn't, but at the same time, well, you always can, you know, I felt like, um, I felt like I'd put almost everything I learned and everything mm -hmm. I learned about songwriting, mm -hmm. everything I loved about playing, right. collaborating was really important to me on that. Like the number of people that worked on it and worked together on it. And like, I think I learned how to mix finally in a way that I think I imagined like a, you know, people, right. the real guys do it, do you it. know? Yeah. Um, and so it was this incredible learning experience um, that was a little self-indulgent, you know? Um, but really, I, I think... I think you were due, man, you know? With well, that's the, fine, the, yeah. You know, I mean, that's, side, that's a fine... side work yeah, that you did. Sure, you know, sure. And, sure. And I felt like the songs were really good, and I felt like it was important to, to do it, yeah. it personally, and... Um, I didn't do it again, you know? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't yeah, feel like I needed yet. to do it again. Um, and then the other thing that happened is that I started getting stuff in the studio, right? right? right. Like I started getting other bands in there. Sure. I started doing more work. Um, so it just sort of fell in, you know, it actually did what it was supposed to do. It was like a little bit of a calling card for the studio. Card. Right, sure. Um, yeah. But every so often, you know, that embarrassing thing when your own stuff comes up in your shuffle happens. <laughs> and you're, um, you're not, do you ever not recognize it? Like for I remember, a second? Uh, I remember uh, happened to me. hanging out with Will Rigby back in, when we used to both live in Brooklyn and, and um, that happened. And he was like, he's like, you got to go through iTunes and uncheck all of your, so <laughs> all of your own songs, right? He's like, come on, you got to do this. <laughs> you got to do it. But every so often some will come up and, right. and, you know, I'm really proud of it. And uh, you should be, it's a great record. Um, I'm not sure why I didn't stay on that track, except that you know whatever. Um, I was approaching 50 years old when I when I when I finished it up. I mean, look, man, there's always you know. I always think that there's there's time for when it when when it presents itself that you need to do it again. I think yeah. you know you will do it again. But I mean, for now, I mean, sort of to segue into what you're currently doing, um, it's another sort of interesting turn. Your your latest sort of band project is a power trio called Wire Troop and where you're sort of holding down guitar and lead vocal duties. Um, and I, I love the idea of the power trio. Mm -hmm. It's like the green, you know, it's like, a, it's its own, <laughs> it's its own. There was a joke in a studio. I remember it was like, uh, a, some producer told me one time, it's like, uh, he's like, well, you know, my, my mom really want, 
she was she played in a four piece, but my mom always really wanted to be in a power trio. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know where that came from, but I was it just you know. Well, there's a so, couple things like, like in the among the band. Um, our joke is, is that three people is twice as few as four in a, in a band situation, <laughs> right, as right. you can imagine. Both from a sound output right, yeah. and also from a personality standpoint. I love the minimal. I mean, because you, yeah, you have to do more with less, mm. and it really make, makes everything else. I mean, I, I assume you feel this way. For me, it, it feels like it makes everything else uh, makes everything more important. Mm. You know, there's really is it's an economy. Right. You know, of what you're playing, everything has to work mm-hmm. um, to, to sort of fill that space. And then the space is also kind of cool, too, right? I mean, well, I mean, that whole thing, I, I, I did, I did want to start playing again. And, 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 and I think that um, playing is the key word there, right? I wanted to play again the same way that I played mm-hmm. the guitar, like when I played the Blue Jays. Right. I think over the years, I played a lot of guitar with a lot of people and, um, you know, had become that kind of ensemble player, and, mm-hmm. and I think I was good at it, and right. um, I, I enjoyed For it. Sure. But I also sort of wanted to just play a little more. Right. Um, and then it, the the trick was really just finding the right people. So John Lee, the bass player, is somebody I've played with over the years in a lot of different combos, including yours. And um, yeah, great bass player. So he, just, he's the first person that sort of popped up in my mind of like if I wanted if I wanted to have a band with just three people like I want to hang right, out with John Lee. John Lee, you just, and then Tom McCrum, to Tom Tom McCrum, the the drummer, uh, was in a band called Tandy that I was in briefly, um, I and that. I also played some session work for this guy named Mike, Mike Ferio. He was really the leader of that band, and we had played. And so anyway, Coyote Studios in Williamsburg, where we all sort of hung out. He was one of the guys that was always around there, and, mm-hmm. and I always loved the way he played the drums. Um, and then, you know, the more I got to know him and the more, and when we first started playing, you know, just the, he, you know, he was playing jazz gigs when he was 13, 14, 15 years old. So, um, just that facility. And then I was like, so it was funny because I was like, okay, we want to, I want to have a trio, but what kind of band should we be? Right. And, um, we really did. Like I still had my studio then and we Mm, got together on Wednesday and we just play something, just a cover. Is that the kind of band we wanted? And then, like, you know, and we really started out with some, like, heavy stuff. Like, mm. not quite cream, but almost. Really? Yeah, because I thought that would be fun, right? Okay. And um, I don't, yeah, I don't. We didn't get there. Um, You're kind of playing in the country. Yeah, there's a lot of country still yeah. in there. But it's a, it's a, you know, you, if, you know, somebody came off the street mm. that, that wasn't listening too hard and we were playing in a bar, they'd say, well, that's a blues rock band. True, and, and True. Or maybe they would say that's that like a pub that. rock band. Right, which right. is I, that's how we sort of fashion ourselves. Mm-hmm. So, if you can imagine, uh, I don't know if you're into English, you know, pre that pub rock scene, you know, with like Dr. Feelgood and those mm-hmm. bands, yeah. you know, Will where Johnson. it's all just it's blues based. Um, it's just rock. It's a rock band. Right. It's a garage rock band. It's um, yeah, yeah. with three people though. It's a little less that right. You guys um, are a little. I would take it as you're a little more polished, maybe. right? And and again, the other thing I remembered is those guys I was talking about, those buskers, mm-hmm. like um, that I fell in with. And who I hold dear as mentors, musical mentors, because they played everything. They had no boundaries. Like yeah, you and, and not only did they have no boundaries, but um, they were sort of in your face about it. Right. And and so one of the things I like to do with Wire Troop, which is the name of the new combo, is just play whatever. Like so, we play like R and B instrumentals, like That's that cool. sort of like Ike Turner ish, right, right. Mickey Baker kind of things, yeah, yeah. and then we play some Webb Pierce, like Weeper, mm-hmm. you know, some country music. It's great. And then we try and be like rock pile because that's the best thing oh, ever. Right. And then, 
you know, we try and be like Dr. Feelgood, but but it not. all jives. So uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it it's so it's all about having fun. And right. again, I think that's the key. Is um, I'm not writing songs per se for it. I've written, written. Right. I'm making scare quotes in the podcast area. Yes, this is um, a very I've visual written some medium. songs that are just you know genre pieces, just mm -hmm. a typical of you know a blues song, you know. Right stolen from other blues songs and, and instrumentals that sound like my favorite instrumentals from the 50s and 60s. It's a great little combo, man. I, I've, I've, I've seen you guys play live and it's really, it's really cool. I've heard and, you uh, on the radio and stuff. Yeah, I mean, too. a couple of people have said, you know, they're like, you know, where'd this come from? And it, again, it doesn't seem disconnected to me. It doesn't seem disconnected. It doesn't really when you hear it. Right. It sounds maybe so when you talk about it even more so, but when you actually, like you said, if you hear it, you're like, oh, that totally makes sense and jives with almost everything right. that I've seen you touch. And then I wanted to sort of teach myself to play and sing in a different way than I had. So mm -hmm. it's, I certainly perform my own songs in front of people for a long time yeah, yeah. singing, but being a songwriter and singing your song is a little bit different than like selling like that rock song. So I'm trying yeah. to become more of that kind of singer. Yeah. You know? yeah. We say that we say that three is three is twice as few as four, and <laughs> no one's going to sing about their feelings tonight. That's the other thing we say. It's a feelings-free zone. <laughs> yes, but not so, their own feelings. Yes, the yes. feelings of, of of others. Of others. Yes, yes. Well, hey man, I got to thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us, and uh, it was so much fun, and it's great to sort of hear your you know about your journey, a lot of which I didn't know, even though I've known you mm -hmm. for a long time, and it's. I'm, I'm, I've got, I'm, I'm thinking over, I'm thinking over, what was the band that you said? I didn't even know the Zephyr, what was it? The, the Zephyrs. Well, the Zephyrs, Angel Dean and the Zephyrs. The yeah. Zephyrs was a band. It okay. was a Zydeco band. Okay, because I didn't know They played in the West that. Village. Don Christensen was the drummer okay. for that band, and he was in that band, the Ray Beats, and he was also in the Contortions. Oh, so he okay. was a, plus he was in Philip, the Philip Glass Ensemble. He was a really, <laughs> he, and now he's a painter. He's That's a really, very really, really cool guy. Yeah. And Angel yeah. had, was like a country singer from Georgia. Like, I didn't know that. Who was in the, that band, The Last Roundup. I didn't know that you were involved anyway, in any of that. And, and it was, that was fun, writing songs and playing uh, with them. They were great musicians. See, I didn't know that. See, I'm learning, I'm learning tonight. I'm learning many things about you. <laughs> so, again, thank you, man, for doing this. And before we let you go, you're going to play something for us, right? We're going to hear a little something. You're going to do, uh, what, what are you going to do? I'm going to do a song called Wait, which is a song... Um, I wrote for Laura to sing. Okay. Um, uh, I think it was a sort of, there's a good story because When the Roses Bloom Again is that classic sophomore record, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're like, oh man, we got to have songs. Yeah. And like, we got to make the record right now because John Peel will forget and like right. all this stuff, right? You have that. And, and, um, and so the pressure's on to like come up with materials as good as the first one, which you sat on forever. And, right, you have your uh, whole life to make your first record. And um, though I think, the, I think the great thing about Laura is that she was really smart about like, she, she wrote four songs in that first record and then there were eight covers, you mm -hmm. know, and th the way she chose them was just kind of really brilliant. And also like, anyway, it was just a great way to make a, a record where there's not that much pressure to write all every word. And um, took the same approach to the second one. But very, very, I mean, we were already in the studio recording the record. You know, we needed more songs. And I, I remember they had a loft then that we recorded most of the record mm -hmm. in, or a lot of it in, uh, on, in Williamsburg on North 3rd Street. And um, I remember playing this for her. <laughs> and I had played her a bunch of songs. Right. And she was like, not that one. Right. Right. And, uh, and I think it was like eight bars in. And she's like, how's that go? And then she got her guitar. 
you know, yeah. you could tell that, okay, that's that's one she's gonna connect she's to. Gonna Part connect of it is that I, I was thinking about her singing it when I wrote it instead right. of not, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And one of the things right. that she's, she's got this beautiful sneaky range, mm -hmm. right? That she's got this beautiful, almost tenor, like yeah. mellow, low, low end that's really mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, but then she does this thing where she sort of, when she writes her own songs, she'll she'll just she'll just like she'll just fly up a six or you know she'll just go right mm -hmm. and it's and just her, it's just it. her natural way right. of I think singing and the natural way she hears it and I thought I'll write something like that right you know because I can't I'm gonna do it myself now but <laughs> I can't try. do it you're yeah. gonna do it tonight well I can do it but right. it's just so uh, the one of the reasons I wanted to I chose that song right. is it's it was a song. It's a very songwriting song, songwriting song in the sense of this is not a song. It's for me at all. This mm -hmm. is a song I'm gonna, you know. I never really tried to right. be that kind of songwriter, and I've only done it a few times where I've like actually written for something for somebody where it fits on them. Right, right. And and also she's like, and then she changed this and she and she made it her own. She made right? it her own. So um, that's that's why I chose this one. Awesome, man. Well. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So thank you again. And uh, so we're going to get into that now. So uh, without further ado, here is Jay Sherman Godfrey performing Wait. I never saw it coming so how I never did The last one to know that you were on to something new Tried to say I was sorry for the things I did Apologies fall flat I watch my words drop dead so far ahead of me Wait I'm coming Wait Stop running away I wake from a dream Not knowing If it's all too real And I watch the world go rushing by I'm standing still Tried to catch the wave riding, sliding down Carries you away on me, it's crashing down I'm reaching out to you, wave I'm coming way Stop running away These baby steps seem shy As you go bounding by And as I rise to run You're taking off to if I catch your eye, won't you wait? I'm coming, wait. Stop running. 
Thanks to Jay Sherman Godfrey for coming down to chat and play for us and for graciously agreeing to be my first victim here on the Queen's Creative Podcast. To learn more about Jay and his work, visit his Facebook page, facebook.com slash j.shermangodfried. That's J-A-Y dot S-H-E-R-M-A-N-G-O-D-F-R-E-Y. And to catch a video version of Jay's performance today, as well as an exclusive bonus performance shot live in our QPTV studios, visit us on the web at qptv.org slash queenscreative. Well, that just about does it for episode one of the Queen's Creative Podcast. I don't know about you kids, but I had a lot of fun today. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods, and please visit Queen's Public Television on the web at qptv.org. QPTV can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash queenspublictelevision, and on Twitter and Instagram, we're at QPTV. Queen's Creative was produced, recorded, and mixed by yours truly. Before we go, a big thanks and shout out to Dan Leone, President and CEO of Queen's Public Television, for allowing me to make this podcast using the amazing creative sandbox that is QPTV. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Bacino. Till next time, see ya.